I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And And this this is Hashtag Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. This is Hashtag History, episode 30. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And we are coming at you remotely because um, our entire world has been taken over by the coronavirus. So, yeah. So this is a little different for us. We are video conferencing this whole thing. And it's really super sad not to be together, especially because this episode, as you guys know, is our season three finale. Yeah. I, I It is. And every time we say this, um, that we can't believe we made it through another season. But again, I can't believe we made it through another season. This one, meaning we have 30 episodes behind us. Yeah. In less than a year. That's crazy. Yeah. So this season's um, season finale is extra special because we have a super special guest on the show. As we mentioned before on the podcast, Leah and I are from Sacramento, and Sacramento has a ton of incredible history, which also means that Sacramento has a ton of incredible museums. One of those museums is the California State Railroad Museum, which is an amazing museum that was first opened up in 1976 and receives approximately 500,000 visits per year, 100,000 of which are from yours truly. (laughs) But seriously, guys, I have so many amazing memories going to the Railroad Museum growing up, and I continue to super enjoy it as an adult. Leah, I'm sure you have memories of the Railroad Museum growing up. Um, maybe I know we probably went as kids growing up, but I actually most of my memories are more as an adult. Um, yeah. Just as an event planner, we've we've definitely gone on a couple tours and thought about hosting events there before, which I know they do. So. And obviously I've gone and looked at the exhibits as an adult as well, because hashtag nerds. (laughs) So why are we talking about the California State Railroad Museum today? That is because this week we have public historian and subject matter expert Nicole Allison on the podcast. Nicole works at the Railroad Museum and was instrumental in establishing their latest exhibit, which is called Crossing Lines, Women of the Railroad. So, Nicole, welcome to the show. And welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, Nicole, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about the Crossing Lines exhibit. So Crossing Lines, Women of the American Railroad is an exhibit at the California State Railroad Museum. It comes from my thesis project. Um, I took a couple classes with director Dr. Ty Smith. I took a museums class with him and I took an exhibits building class with him. So the uh, Farm to Fork exhibit that is currently in the uh, reefer car was my class's project for that class that's awesome that was pretty cool actually um it's amazing so the when we were doing that exhibit he had us walk through the museum and explain what we saw when we came back and for me it was the opposite I it was what I didn't see I didn't see women being represented in the Mm. museum they were represented as wives they were tucked away in the corner over by station 22 um 
you know, there was just no strong representation. It was just all the big men, the big four mm. and, you know, Theodore Judah and trains, trains, trains. But there was nothing about women's contributions. Like we're 50% of the population. What were we doing? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, at that point, it still was not my thesis project idea. I just, that's just what I had mentioned. And then it came down to deciding on a topic. And, you know, they tell you that you better love your topic because by the end, you it, will not like it very much. Yeah, it's all you live and breathe. Right. But fortunately for me, I actually still really like this topic. So I, I'm fortunate. When I was writing my thesis, there were a few points. <laughs> not <maybe>. so much. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so it came down to having to pick because the time, you know, clock's ticking. I got to get this done. And I, I went to Dr. Smith and I said, you know, I'd really like to do something on women do you think that I could do something here with the museum? And he said, absolutely. And the original focus was actually going to be Latina railroad workers. Oh, that would have been great. Which were track workers in Southern California. And they have a link to the museum. Their family is, is a big contributor to the museum and stuff. So we really wanted to honor that. And I even talked to Dr. Uh, Vicki Ruiz from, um, UC Irvine she's an expert subject matter expert in Latina especially women yeah Latina women's history and um she was she she was like it lacks scholarship this is excellent you should totally do it she gave me resources and I was like rah 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 I'm gonna do this and when I went to research it there was just nothing nothing yeah so I had to go back and why why I mean that's because just it wasn't important and not, not that it isn't important, but that they, the importance of it wasn't there at the time. And so records weren't kept. And is that what you think is why you weren't finding much? I think that women's railroad history is lacking anyway. And then you throw in the aspect of a minority and it's practically non-existent. Right. Cornweeble, the, Dr. Theodore Cornweeble has one chapter on African-American women of the railroad in his, in his entire book. And that's wow. like the leading authority on African-American women in the railroad. One chapter. Wow. So I could not find anything. I had to go back to Dr. Smith and be like, can we widen, broaden this? Because this is way too narrow. I'm, I'm not going to get the amount of writing that I need out of this. And he said, sure. So we opened it up and um, that's how it started. I love it. Yeah. And I have a question for you. Ty Smith, was your, your program was through Sacramento State, right? Correct. I, went, I was an undergrad at Sac State and then I went into the master's program for public history at Sac State. Okay. So I think I actually had Ty as a professor for an undergrad history class I took. Cool. Yeah. Dr. Smith. Um, it was about and tell me if this fits into his wheelhouse. It was like about this um, city and the history of how the city became what it is. And then he had us read a book that I am actually in love with, even to this day, called Crabgrass Frontier. It fits into his wheelhouse. I also took that class, but it was with a different professor. <laughs> so I know what class you're talking about. But yeah, it totally fits into his wheelhouse. And he's now he's the director of the Railroad Museum. Correct. He's also a graduate from uh, Sac State Public History Program, and he has a PhD, which is joint from UC Santa Barbara and uh, Sac State. Wow, that is super impressive. Yeah. That is an awesome resource and mentor. Right. He's I'm I'm extremely lucky to have him. Uh, 
I'm thankful for the opportunity they gave me. I mean, in all honesty, when I started this project, I thought it was just my thesis project, right? I didn't think that it was going to be an actual exhibit for, and then when I saw the five-year plan, it, I really thought that it'd be at the back of the five-year plan, not like, you know, I'm coming into work after Christmas break and they're all, Hey, your exhibit's going in in March. That's amazing. What? Like I freaked out. So it's, it's, it's an honor actually. Well, it's it's something you should be super, super proud of. Um, that's actually something. Let's talk about that just really quickly. Um, in light of everything that's going on right now in the world with the coronavirus, um, Nicole's, the exhibit, the Crossing Lines exhibit at the California Railroad Museum, it opened in March. And we were super jazzed to go to a reception that the Railroad Museum was holding Um kind of, you know, like an opening of the exhibit. And unfortunately that got canceled in light of the um, virus. But Nicole, tell us still, I mean, the museum is closed now. What, what does it look like for people being able to see that exhibit? Well, it's not canceled. We're just postponing it. Um, Okay, good. uh, When we can open the museum again, um, they are still planning to do the event. You know, it's, it was heartbreaking. It was sad because, we, ha- we had a lot planned for the opening event. We were going to honor some rail- railroad women and um, Shirley Berman was going to be there and we'll talk about her in a minute. And yeah, it was just, it's, it's sad, but it's just postponed, right? Yeah. And that's what we just have to, everyone keep your head up. That's what we're going to keep looking forward to. <laughs> All right. Let's try this cocktail. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Drink so time. Go as for it. you can imagine... This week has been hard. (laughs) I am on day, like, I think it's 10 or 11 of self-isolation. And I'm losing all sense of time and somehow almost forgot to research a cocktail for this week, even though I have so much time. I'm on day 11 (laughs) as well. (laughs) Yeah. So we were just kind of talking about this offline, but how are you guys handling everything? Just... Um... It's fine. I think it's it's one of those things that I keep putting myself into perspective of there's so much worse going on in the world right now. And yeah. if I'm going to complain about being stuck at home, like that's really awful of me. But at the same time, to be 100% honest, it is difficult being home 24-7. I'll agree with that as well. And I also think, like I was telling Rachel, that... Uh, it's giving people an opportunity to face themselves. You know what I mean? This is, this is an unprecedented time in history, which is cool for me, unfortunately, but (laughs) (laughs) for for the history nerds, it's cool to be able to say I lived through that. Hashtag nerds. (laughs) Yeah. There's definitely going to be some um, serious societal repercussions because of this. I don't think our world is ever going to be the same, to be honest. No, No, it won't. It won't really feel in all honesty uh and i was telling dr smith this who's my boss i was telling him i really feel that this is going to propel museums into museum 2.0 3.0 which we've been talking about which is the museum of of by for and all and that's you know inclusiveness including the community and being more than a museum but an actual place of learning and mm. a place where community oh, i love that happens. so yeah. i love that i've seen a huge push for the promotion of the arts in this time too yeah Mm -hmm. well on a better 
slightly more hopefully tipsy note Uh, (laughs) this week's cocktail is called the harvey girl cocktail which it's tiki drink Um, i'm sure we'll dig more into harvey girls a little bit later on in this episode but in short um, the harvey girl cocktail was a staple at the harvey restaurants which was a chain that was always strategically placed alongside railroad stations. Um, And this was mostly throughout the 19th century. Uh, The special thing about the restaurant was the fact that they hired single women who were looking to start their independent lives, which was obviously rare back in the day. Um, So this drink is typically made with pineapple juice, rum, vermouth, and chamomile syrup. Now, because of quarantine, I didn't have chamomile syrup, so I was just planning on taking a wide swing and using like ginger or vanilla syrup instead. But then a little elf left me a present on my doorstep. (laughs) Um, Rachel made all of us chamomile syrup and then delivered it to us. So thank you, Rachel. Yes. Special (laughs) delivery. Yeah. So the chamomile syrup, um, very, very simple. All it was, was boiling water and sugar together and then throwing a shit ton of chamomile tea bags in the pot. Thank you. Almost certainly. Me too. All right. Well, let's take a sip and try it and let us know your thoughts, guys. I like it. Uh, It's different. It's different. It has a forward taste and then it disappears. (laughs) I really love that description. Yeah. No, I like it. And um, I'm not the hugest fan of vermouth. (laughs) Mostly just because we had it in like every drink in season one. Um, Yeah, you did. (laughs) But but I actually like it in this. And I, I think it goes really well with that chamomile syrup. That's what I was going to say. I can really taste the chamomile syrup. So if you didn't, can you really? Yeah. Yay! I'm glad. I I don't know if it's just like my badge, you know. I yeah, it could be that too. (laughs) It could be that. Um, what I was going to say, similar, Leah. I'm not a huge vermouth person again because of PTSD from season one. (laughs) (laughs) But I it blends so well that like I know the vermouth is in there, but I can't necessarily pick out the vermouth. And then we were were talking offline before we started recording this episode. The amount of pineapple juice in there is so slight. It's only in half an ounce, but it's perfect, actually. I actually, I don't know if I would have been able to pick out pineapple juice in this drink. I agree. It kind of has like, a you know, those candies that you get at the candy store that like the rock sugar stuff. It kind of has that that taste you taste the sweetness right up front and then all of a sudden nothing and then nothing (laughs) well nicole as our guest um typically leah and i will rate our drinks on a scale of one to ten nicole you are our guest what's the rating for this drink this week yeah you know eight's my favorite number i saw that you gave your last drink an eight Um, I feel like that's a safe number. <laughs> I, yeah. I kind of like it. It's not too bougie. It's not too low class. Um, I would drink it again. I would make it. Yes. I, I'd have to get a hold of Rachel to make the <laughs> chamomile the, syrup. The but... personally delivered chamomile syrup. Yes, Joby, please deliver it. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Thanks for putting together the drink, Leah. I love it. Yeah, well, it came at the recommendation of Rachel. So, of course, I just did what she told me. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad it's railroad theme. That's totally cute. Yeah. Great. Okay. 
Moving on, Nicole. Yes. One of the things you shared with us in preparation for this episode was your historiography. And did I pronounce that right? right? Yes. For any non-history majors like myself out there, Mm -hmm. um, could you share what exactly a historiography is and everything that goes into writing one? Sure. So historiography itself is actually the history of history. So it's what historians before me have said about the topic. Um, So if you noticed when you read my historiography, I brought up a bunch of different authors. They're all historians that have talked about this same subject subject matter and they've built either built upon each other or they're going to argue against each other. And when I'm writing historiography, that's what I'm trying to show. I'm trying to show what each one has said, what their argument has been, and what am I contributing that's different from that. And I, so I have not yet gotten my master's in history, although that is one day out there as one of my ultimate goals. Um, But I... But I have my bachelor's in history. And so I had to take two courses on just historical methods and research and how to write a historiography. Um, And yeah, I mean, it is exactly that. It's it's displaying the theories that other historians have already put together, how they line up with each other, how they don't. And then what you as a historian have to offer and contribute. Right. It's the history of whatever subject matter you are looking at. The history of the history of that. Right. And it's very specific how they have to be written, too. There's like I said, I took two courses on how to write a historiography, not what or like not writing a historiography, how to write. One. Yeah, it's not exactly, um, you know, summer break. No, <laughs> but uh, it was it was difficult at some points, but it was definitely better than writing the methodology section. Mm because that is a completely different style of writing. You're writing in first person. And as a historian, we're taught never to say I, me, we. Right. I mean, it's so hard because you have to say, I did this and I did that. And then I did this. And then I followed this best practice. And it, it's, it's, <laughs> it was so hard to write the methodology. So like Leah shared, um, Nicole, we got to read your historiography in preparation for this episode. And I love the way that you started it. You you. opened up the paper, of course, you opened up the paper with the infamous quote, well-behaved women seldom make history. And then you applied this quote directly to women of the railroad. Why? Because if you think of railroad people, you think of overalls, you think of dirt and grit, but you don't think woman. And when you put a woman into that position, what does she become? She becomes a woman that makes history because she's different than everyone else. Absolutely. And like going right in line with that railroading um, or really any form of manual labor or industrial type work, um, even today, but especially in the 19th century, that was not considered women's work at all. Absolutely not. Yeah. So tell us why, you know, the the motivations and such and how women got to working on the railroads. Well, in my research, I found that most women that got started had a male counterpart in their life that was working in the railroad. But early on, enslaved women pre-Civil War were also working on the railroads and the railroad actually owned some enslaved people and they hired some. Um, 
enslaved women were usually either cooks or they were chained to a male counterpart. And they were usually teenagers. Um, Dr. Theodore Cornweevil from San Diego um, has, like I mentioned before, has a chapter in his book. Um, let me see what the name of the book is. They, hold on. I'll stop you right there for a second. They would be chained to their male counterparts while working on the railroad? Right. Wow. And, you know, as an enslaved woman, you can imagine the treatment because even as a white woman, they were still treated poorly, but poorly compared to what enslaved African-American women faced was, right. I can't even explain. Historian Deborah Gray says that they basically were denied their womanhood. Wow. But uh, yeah, it's it's stuff like that that kind of gets to me sometimes about this whole thing is like mm -hmm. you have to imagine that these women went from one space in history all the way to now. And we don't recognize sometimes how much sacrifices, how many sacrifices were made. But right. um, Theodore Cornweevil's book is uh, Railroads in African American and the African American Experience, a phot Photographic Journey. And okay. there, like I said, there's one chapter on women in there and it's on African American women. Wow. Liter literally, I had to write my thesis on African-American women from that one chapter <laughs> <laughs> and attempt to find other sources. This is uh, this is how scarce it is. And, yeah. And, and that's what drives me, though, you know. Absolutely. And I would say coming from me, who obviously is a major history nerd and I studied history for four years and right. continue to study it now. And I'm also a major like woman power, girl power, um, yeah. feminist, yeah. Mm -hmm. even. Yeah. Even still, I've gone to the railroad museum easily. I would say probably 50 times over the course of my life right. and have never considered until I met with you a, a few months ago the piece that was missing was women on the railroad. I never even considered that piece that of course women were involved and they had major contributions to the railroad system, but it's right. because it's something that has never been addressed fully and appreciated as it should. It's something that we kind of just don't even consider. Right. So um, I'm lucky to live in the Sacramento area where Shirley Berman um, she's actually the leading authority on women in the railroad. She started her research over 37 years ago. Wow. Um, she was married to railroad photographer Richard Steinhammer, who's like a god among railroad photographers. And I've seen uh, his name on a lot of um, photography. Right. right. Mm -hmm. um, and let me tell you, she she loves her husband even now. Oh, um, sweet. It makes, me, it makes me cry. It makes me... <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, but at first, Shirley didn't want to work with me because uh, she took a, a long hiatus when she was taking care of her husband who got Alzheimer's. Um, and um, she's in, currently she's in editing mode with her book. But that's that's why she didn't want to work with me is because she didn't want me to take her information. She didn't want me to burn a bridge with her, et cetera, et cetera. So it took a lot to get with her. But once I did... We just hit it off really well. And, you know, um, I've learned so much from her. And according to her, she found a Washington Globe 
uh, newspaper article that disputes that, you know, history places women coming into the railroad uh, employment in 1855 and surely says, no, no, no. I found a Washington Globe newspaper article that is advertising for char women, for station women, for restaurant uh, workers in 1838. Wow. So, so prior sweet. to Civil War. Exactly. Wow. And then, and then Cornweevil backs her up and says, look, we have enslaved women working pre-1855 too. So wow. I think history needs to take a step back and look at the 1838 date instead of, you know, placing it at, at Elizabeth Coogley. Yeah. Coogley, who was, um, you know, labeled the first employee, the telegrapher, but technically she wasn't. Hmm. That that gives me goosebumps. Just um, it's amazing. The beauty of the study of history is that it is constantly evolving and changing. Right. And that's that is such a neat thing that from your research and Shirley's research that I mean, you could be changing the narrative of women's history. And trust me, that weighed heavily on me when I was doing my research. And in all honesty, as you go back. And you do more research, you find, oh, I made a mistake there and I made a mistake there. And <sighs> you do the best you can. You know what I, mean? yeah. I feel like that heavy side was like, oh, let me take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> it, it totally was. And yeah. a little bit about Shirley. So you, she's in the Sacramento area. Correct. And that she I, even worked. She was a photographer for the Railroad Museum in the early uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. That's, that's where she amazing. met. Her, she, that's where she met Richard. He had an art show, and she Gosh. attended. And they they locked eyes from across the room, and that was it. That was that. That yeah. is sweet. And oh. she, I know, was she was going to be at the um, exhibit, the reception. So oh, hopefully, yes. when this thing gets moved, um, we will get to meet her there. Yes. Uh, I, so I'm, I was supposed to speak and then I was supposed to introduce her because like Dr. Smith, she's also one of my mentors and, you know, at, I've gone and seen her several times now and I feel like every time I go and see her, we get a little bit closer and Aww. she's, she's just got so much history in her head that, that isn't out. I've said over and over again that there's no comprehensive history of women in the railroad and her book is it. And Aww. I just hope that it gets published. Yes, we'll we'll keep like really good, happy thoughts about that because that would be so revolutionary to right. women's history. I agree. Um, in addition to sexism in the railroad industry, there was also a level of racism exhibited there, obviously, um, specifically as it relates to women and the ways in which they were treated differently dependent upon the color of their skin. Can you give us a little more information on that? Sure. So um, like Pullman maids, um, they were actually fighting civil rights pre-civil rights. Um, you have to imagine that the bathrooms were segregated. So you have male and female bathrooms, but then you also have whites and blacks bathrooms. Wow. Now, the railroads did not want to build women's bathroom for white women and for black women. So they didn't. Now, these Pullman maids sometimes had to hold it the entire shift and sometimes they worked overtime wow uh, so when they went to pullman and 
started fighting for their rights, that's that's pre-civil rights, you know, trying to get equality right there. Also, women were responsible for helping the Pullman Porters get their union set up. It was they were, the- yeah, they were instrumental in that. Absolutely. Uh, Rosina Tucker, who is part of the exhibit, uh, she was actually one of the founders of the Women's Auxiliary to the Pullman Porters Union. And with A. Randolph's help, they were able to start uh, the first African-American union. But it was women that really pushed that because the porters, the male, the male porters did not want to ruffle feathers because if they start were, when they tried to start a union they they knew they would get fired wow so the wives were like well maybe we can do something and they did that's awesome and then something you did touch on um a little bit earlier nicole like way back at the beginning you had talked about how your your historiography was initially going to be about latina women on right. Uh, the railroad. Talk a little bit more about the minorities that we see in the railroad, the representation of Mexican women and Chinese women. So newspapers cover a lot more, I noticed, than books do. Um, I found about four articles on Latina women, but they're all California, Southern California, the Banning area. Um, they worked as track workers and, and such, um, track workers as in laying the tracks on the, of the railroad. No, as in picking trash off the tracks, trash branches away so that the train doesn't hit anything obstructive. Got it. Um, Chinese women, honestly, in my research, and this is, this is sad and hurts me a lot, but, um, when I was going through the uh, Southern Pacific bulletins, I literally found a, it's probably two inches by three inches ad or announcement that showed three Chinese women that worked as Pullman Porter maids from Sacramento to San Francisco. And the wording is kind of derogatory. They do list their names, but literally that was the only mention of any Chinese women that I found working on the railroad. Wow. And I'm sure there were, I mean, a ton, a ton. I'm sure. <sighs> I'm sure at the, I could not find any records of them. Wow. And because even at the California Railroad Museum, there's a huge representation of Chinese men and their involvement we, on the railroad. And we just redid the entire Chinese exhibit in the Transcontinental Railroad. We worked with Stanford and their um, gold rush and Chinese specialists. We we brought in the community. Mm. I mean, yeah, there's just no women's representation because either we didn't keep track of the employment records, we lost them in a fire, or they were dressed like men so they weren't recognized as women. Yeah. And I, I would put the most weight in that first theory that it was something that just wasn't important to people at the time that, that the female representation on the railroad was not something that needed to be recorded, which is really sad for us now. Right. Totally agree. But you know, surely 
she's the gatekeeper to some of this history because she's so much older than me. She started researching around the same year that I was born, actually. Wow. So we uh, we have this kind of kismet <laughs> going on. But um, she she is just the greatest resource. I just wish that she had more recognition. Each week, Jason Horton revisits a different year along with the strange history and the cultural happenings during that year. Get your weekly weird history fix with Strange Year. You can listen to Strange Year wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, well, going back to um, sexism on the railroad, mm-hmm. what kind of, I know you talked about um, some women were track workers. What other kinds of jobs were women holding? Um, are we talking more clerical or food service type jobs, which were considered to be more, quote, feminine? Or are we talking about more skilled technical type positions? So during World War One, we see over 100,000 women enter the workforce just in the railroad industry. Of that 100,000. I had no idea the number was that large. Right? Of the 100,000, 61,000 were doing clerical work, type work. So clerks, Mm -hmm. office work, etc. Here's the thing, though. White women were given clerical work. Minorities were the last hired and first fired, and they were usually given labor, intensive labor, or like track work, yard work, etc. So white women are working inside, minorities are working outside. I would say from the many times that I've been to the Railroad Museum, uh, I can only recall the one woman that's sitting in that one exhibit, and she's uh, um, working for the Telegraph. You know which one I'm talking about, Nicole? That's supposed to be a representation of Leah Rosenfeld. Okay. Yeah. She's one of the women, uh, she's one of the women highlighted in in the exhibit. Um, Shirley Berman actually became really, really good friends with her and uh, did an oral history with her and et cetera. She basically sued the state of California because... (gasps) Yeah, she's re- she's responsible for some of the laws women have uh, in the workplace. Um, she w- had a job for many years. She was working in um, uh, Death Death Valley area type of um, depot. She had a bunch of kids, and so she wanted them to be able to run all over. And she'd been working for many years for the railroad, and she wanted to be promoted and the job required 10 hour days and to be able to lift 50 pounds. Well, at that time women could only work eight hours and lift 25 pounds. So every time she applied for this promotion, she got denied. And she's like, I've been working for 10 years. Why am I getting denied? So Leah Rosenfeld is instrumental in women being able to work more than eight hours and uh, lift more than 25 pounds. That's part of the uh, 1964 Equality Act. So, yeah, that's that's the cool thing about these women in the railroad is they weren't just changing railroad history. They're changing employment law, our history and society as a whole. Yeah. Go women. 
right? And then, of course, kind of piggybacking off of Leah's question, I'm sure, Nicole, everyone expects this answer. Um, Were women making the same wages that men were on the railroad? No. And um, during World War One, they were actually making 20 to 20 cents, 22 cents per hour. So 20 to 22 cents per hour for women. And men were making 28 to 30 cents per hour. And that's labeled as a common laborer. And in World War II, so 1943, um, women were making 60% on the dollar as men. And labeled as a trained man, women were making um, 175 a month and men were making 300 a month. Wow. Yeah. So we're looking at half. In 1943, we are. Mm-hmm. Wow. And now I know um, you've kind of you've mentioned it a couple of times. A huge piece of the Crossing Lines exhibit that you put together. Um, it's a highlight of specific women and their contributions to the railroad. Um, can you just tell us about a few of those women? Sure. So some of the women are Shirley Berman. I really wanted to highlight her um, because not only did she does she have a connection to the Railroad Museum. But she's the gatekeeper of this history. Without her, we've, we would have lost so many stories without her. So she's, she's one of them, obviously. And then we have Anna Judah, who um, during that time, you know, she should have been an elite woman throwing parties and hosting things. But instead, she chose to support her husband and even go up into the Sierras and make her own quote unquote pantaloons <laughs> and um, you know, rough it with her husband up in the Sierras while he created the transcontinental route. Wow. And uh, then we have Rosina Tucker, who, as I mentioned before, was part of the Pullman maids and the auxiliary women's auxiliary of the Pullman Porters uh, union. Uh, and then we have Olive Dennis, uh, amazing woman. Uh, she's instrumental in a lot of today's travel luxuries, actually. Um, stain-resistant fabric, seats that recline and have headrests. She held... Uh, oh, my God. Right? her heart. <laughs> <laughs> she um, created a ventilation system that is basically like that little thing that you turn on the airplane that puts the air on you. Oh, yeah. Just you. Yeah, she invented that and had it on the side of the window where it just pointed on one person. Bless her heart. (laughs) She also invented China and a bunch of stuff. She uh, is only the she's the second woman from Cornell to get a um, civil engineering degree. She taught math for 10 years and then decided, you know what? I want to be a civil engineer and went back to school. Oh, my God. I love it. As a as a um, woman that returned to school at 32 years old, I appreciate all of Dennis immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have Leah Rosenfeld, which I already explained. She's instrumental in um, laws for women and equality. And then the last panel is the Railroadettes. And they kind of are the, well, they are the counterpart of Rosie the Riveter. So there was Rosie the Riveter. Wendy the Welder, and the less-known Railroadettes. Hmm. Yeah, I've never heard of them before. (laughs) So SP, 
Southern Pacific ha- during World War II had over 20,000 railroad debts working for them just at, at, in their shops. And I mean, railroad debts were, is that, that's the term for women yep. on, that worked on the railroad? Yep. That's what I, they like to be called. They I love it. Called Rosie. They wanted to be called railroad debts. I love it. So, you know, like when I was researching, I got all these all these women coming up to me with like, oh, Rosie the Riveter, Rosie the Riveter. But then when I talked to women that were actually part of that, they were like, no, we were, you know. We don't associate with that. We were railroad ads. It was actually when I talked to Shirley, she was like, no, they didn't want to be called Rosie. They wanted to be called railroadettes because that's what they were. That's cool. And that's the beauty of, um, I mean, bless Shirley and her still being here because that's the beauty of having someone that has that acknowledged because she's been there. You know, it's stuff that you you and I and Leah and all of us, we can only read so much in history books and make our own theories and assumptions. But right. that's great that Shirley's still here to be able to give that kind of insight. Right. Um, when I asked Shirley how she actually got started, like how she got interested in the subject and she was the photographer for the railroad museum documenting the building of the railroad museum and also the restoration of some locomotives trains in the shops. So one day in the fall of 1978, she showed up at the shops and they were recording a movie, the movie, I don't know what it was. Um, but with all the hustle and bustle and she was seeing women working on these trains, it sparked something in her to ask an employee that worked there. Hey, do, did women work on the railroad? And he was like, yeah, they did. And she said, well, is there anything written about them or can I find any information? He's all not that I know of. No. Wow. That's what sparked her, her first inclination of, Hmm. I wonder where the women were in railroad history. That's cool. But she worked for the railroad a couple years longer. And then she met Richard Steinhammer at the art thing. And because he was who he was, this grandiose photographer dude, he opened up access for her to the rail yards. Access that me or you would never get because... We're not them. Right. (laughs) So she was allowed access to places that most people wouldn't have. And she was able to talk to women that most people wouldn't be able to talk to. That's amazing. Exactly. So, yeah. (laughs) That is so cool. Wow. All right. Um, To wrap it all up, tell us um, if you had to sum this whole thing up about why this topic is important and why people should know about it, um, what would it be? And what differences did women make on the railroad? If it hadn't been for women, how differently would railroad would the railroad look? And what specific enhancements did women bring to the industry? Well, you know, women made a vast difference, um, not only in the railroad, but as society as a whole. Um, you know, we've got Shirley and Anna and Rosina and Olive and Leah and the railroadettes, and they all leave a legacy, but the railroads would probably look a lot different if it wasn't for these women and a lot of other women. I mean, women not only brought a femininity to the railroad, they brought domesticity to the railroad. 
they brought the the home sphere. We have the you know the separate spheres coming into the 19th century with home and the work. And I think that if women weren't on the railroad, it would look a lot. Travel in general would look a lot different than it does now. Women just have a different concept and a different idea of certain things. I mean, look at the Pullman Porter maids pushing for the union. If it wasn't right. for them, there wouldn't be that union. And that's, um, I mean, that's the beauty of womanhood. We just have different skill sets and passions and drives and, and pushing forward with the union. I mean, that's massive girl power. I also forgot Jenny Curtis. She's also part of the exhibit. She was a 19 year old. Um, she worked for, Pull- for the Pullman company. And she led the strike, um, one of the strikes, and at nineteen. Wow. wow. Yeah. So uh, it's not that they were just instrumental in railroad history. It's that each one of these women that have been chosen for this exhibit also pushed something ahead in society. So you know, like Avila Modesta, who is a Chicana feminist icon at this point. The railroads have right away at late 19th century. Southern California is starting to build. We have Anglo-Americans coming from the east. They're building Southern California. The railroads have right away an eminent domain and the Californios and the Native Americans are losing their land and they end up selling for cheap rates because they have no choice. So Avalon's family was one of these people and the railroad it ended up building the tr- the tracks 15 feet from her door. Oh my god. Her chicken stopped laying eggs and she couldn't sleep. So she was obviously pretty upset. Oh my god. I mean, I get annoyed with the rail the um train tracks are right by my house, but right? they're not that close and the most they do is I can't even say they rattled the civil war cuz they don't do that. <laughs> So her story is a little, um, like there's things that don't like, did she die in prison? Did she die out of prison? Did she have a baby? Did she not have a baby? But she's still seen as this Chicana feminist because of her defiance to authority. Um, she's the first felon in California. She was sentenced to San Quentin because she, threw a railroad tie onto the tracks and said, uh, this land is mine. Pay me $10,000. Oh my God. She was charged with trying to incite a, uh, train crash. And the first trial was a hung jury. And then the second trial, she was convicted. And even her lawyer labeled her as like promiscuous and this and that and the other thing. (laughs) So uh, she ends up going to San Quentin, but, you know, records show either she died before, she died after, but a new article has come to light and and shows that she probably died after she was released from San Quentin. So she's the first female to go to San Quentin. Wow. And uh, yeah. And this is, can you say, can you say her name again? Modesta Avila. Okay. I'm going to, I'm jotting that one down for myself. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I mean, these women, every single one of them have not only moved railroad history, but societal history as well. 
You know, women today only hold 23% of Amtrak's employment rate. And most of them are in finance or upper management. We only hold uh, 7 to 10% according to a 2015 report in, in the Progressive Rail magazine of the entire railroad industry. And even then, we're in upper management, finance, et cetera. We're not on the actual rails. Mm. So, yeah, I, we're making a difference, but... Yeah, I just think the biggest piece is the not only women's contributions to the railroad, but the way that their contributions to the railroad contributed to, like you said, life, society, law, and the way right. that we operate today. Exactly. Travel. <laughs> Travel. Which, that's, which that's huge. To me, says, look, to women now, look at how these women were just doing their job. And because something they didn't like, they decided to, to try and fight for change. They changed history. I love it. I mean, we are all capable of that. That's what it tells you. That was fantastic. It was so great having you on the podcast, Nicole. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, yeah, thank, thank you. And um, Nicole, go ahead and let our listeners know where they can find you on Instagram to follow your um, history adventures. And then um, also where they can check out the Railroad Museum and the exhibit. So you can follow me at adventures underscore with underscore a underscore historian on Instagram. (laughs) So adventures with historian underscore under every word, obviously. (laughs) Or I'm I'm also curator of the Railroad Museum's Instagram page. And that's just uh, the California State Railroad Museum. Yeah, go check out um, those Instagram accounts and definitely the Railroad Museum because I'm sure, Nicole, you guys will be joyfully announcing when the um, museum is back open after everything we're going through and and when that exhibit reception will be back on. We miss our visitors so much. I mean, really, that's what we're there for. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. We're trying to find ways to incorporate the community outside of having the museum open but it's just been so uh, you guys know it's just been it's hard yeah it's really hard yeah okay all right well thank you so much again nicole it was super awesome having you on i appreciate you guys having me on of course and then for our listeners you guys know the drill if you enjoyed the episode do us a favor and subscribe to hashtag history on whatever podcast platform you use share it with a friend and give us a rate and review and then as you know this is the last episode of season three um we will be returning on may 5th cinco de mayo with a (laughs) with a super special episode maybe i should make the drink that um that week uh margarita i i love it Oh, God. Yeah. But be sure to check us out on Instagram in the meantime at hashtag history underscore podcast because we will be staying active on there over our month long break between seasons. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, she says her Wi Fi cut out. Oh, joy. That's a bummer because my. I'm very thirsty and I was hoping we were going to get to the drink (laughs) ASAP. (laughs) You know what it tastes like? Tea.
It starts with <laughs> Oh, like T, T-E-A. I thought you said P as in urine. No, T. <laughs> no, you go for it. Oh, no, you go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, no, you. I know, huh? <laughs> okay. 